Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, April 14th, we are studying Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 49. Jesus finishes his journey to the cross, where he dies as the Christ of God, his chosen one, in order to earn forgiveness for us sinners. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Luke Zimmerman. Pastor Zimmerman serves at Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Pastor Zimmerman, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. It is always good to be with you. As we get started this morning, Pastor Zimmerman, let's talk context. What should we know as we prepare to read this text from Luke 23? Well, we are really at the high point of Christ's passion, as recorded by the Gospel writer Luke. Um, This is the heart of Christ's work as the one who has been sent to atone for the sins of the world and to bring salvation to this creation that has been separated by sin, uh, separated from its creator um, due to its rebellion against the creation, the creator's law. And so this is the high point. Um, Now, if we've been listening through Luke's gospel, um, the previous couple episodes, our our listeners would have heard about other things happening uh, in the Passion account. Um, All the gospels record a Passion account of Christ because that's essential to his identity. And so Luke is no different than that. Um, And so we would have heard about all the happenings on Palm Sunday, Um, so the triumphal entry. We would have heard about all the teachings that Jesus does during Holy Week, uh, his public appearances during Holy Week. But then we kind of shift to things happening where we're like right at Christ's suffering, dying, being buried, and then ultimately being raised from the dead. And so you would have had, you know, Jesus uh, praying on the Mount of Olives, Jesus being betrayed by Judas, Jesus being taken to the high priest's house, and then Peter denying that he even knows Jesus, all the mocking and trying of Jesus that happens, then being brought by the Sanhedrin leaders to Pilate to be arraigned, and then being sent over to Herod because Pilate doesn't want to deal with the matter, you know, pass it off to someone else. Uh, Herod uh, sending Jesus back to Pilate, and then the formal um, imperial trial, so Roman trial. And then ultimately, as we're going to hear in our reading for today, uh, Jesus being crucified and then dying. And then uh, we'll hear uh, in the next episode about Jesus being buried and being raised from the dead. Um but what's interesting is like all these things that, that Luke records are all things that Luke mentioned in the gospel earlier that Jesus said would happen. He gives these passion predictions, and they are fulfilled by him because it's essential to his identity as the Lord's Christ. 
That's a good reminder that these things that we're reading are things Jesus has said would happen. In particular, as we've been reading Luke and his account of Holy Week, there's been a couple of times where he has recorded events that remind us that what Jesus says happens, what happens on Palm Sunday and on Monday, Thursday, when Jesus gives his disciples the instructions for the preparation of how to get ready for those events for him riding into Jerusalem and then for the Passover that he celebrates with them. Those things happen exactly as they say. And so, as you said, if we've been reading along with Luke, the things that we're about to read, we know these things are going to happen because Jesus has said them. And so we're going to see that happen again. And as you said, this is the high point. This is the climax of what Jesus is doing for our salvation, his crucifixion and his death that we're going to read about today. So we are in Luke 23, beginning at verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green... What will happen when it is dry? That takes us through verse 31 of the text. Jesus is still on his way to the cross at this point. And our text begins today, Pastor Zimmerman, with Simon of Cyrene. So tell us a little bit about him and his role in Jesus' passion. Okay, well, first off, we got to know where Cyrene is. And so uh, that's always a good uh, good thing because that, that's uh, how he's identified, uh, Simon of Cyrene. So it's in uh, modern-day Libya, northern Africa. Um, so it is part of the Roman Empire. Um, so that's, you know, part of the geography of the Mediterranean region. Uh, but why is he in Jerusalem? And why is he mentioned there um, besides the fact that he's going to carry uh, Jesus' cross as he's present to duty. Um, what we understand um, from both uh, scriptural references and extra-scriptural references is that we, we know that there are uh, places all across the Mediterranean region where you have descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so what we would call uh, Israelite, you know, so descendants of Jacob, um, scattered in what we call the diaspora. So you've had all sorts of things. Uh, Some of our listeners might be familiar when we talked about uh, the book of Ezekiel uh, in in our broadcast. And, you know, part of the issue with like the book of Ezekiel is you had these descendants of Jacob who have been exiled and taken to all sorts of different places away from their homeland of Judea. And so this happens. And what happens when you have people who are either forcibly exiled or sometimes move away uh, to seek out fortunes, you know, to um, take up businesses or things like that, is you will often have communities of Jewish people in these Mediterranean cities. And they have their own synagogues and things in those cities where they, where they had been scattered to. But some also return back to Jerusalem, not just as pilgrims like at Passover, uh, but actually kind of resettle back into Jerusalem. And in fact, in the book of Acts, 
we have references to both pilgrims from Cyrene being in Jerusalem at the uh, Pentecost festival. But you also have reference to like a synagogue of Cyrenians being in Jerusalem. Now, part of the problem is when you go away, you sometimes lose some of your distinctives, um, maybe not of like the cultural distinctives of uh, keeping the Jewish uh, rights, but you, you might lose the language. And so you sometimes have these synagogues where people were gathered by the languages they spoke. They were all believers in the books of Moses and the prophets and the Psalter, um, but, but learning it in Greek or other languages. And so it seems like this Simon is there in Jerusalem, and he's present at the Passover festival, uh, but he gets pressed into duty, <laughs> something he doesn't want to do, uh, as he's walking into the city, and he is, uh, well, the Romans just kind of grab him and say, you're carrying this beam uh, because the person we're crucifying apparently isn't capable of doing so. What's the what's the theological significance? I mean, that's that's a historical event. It's true. It happened. What's the theological significance of watching Simon do this? Well, what's kind of interesting is we learn this not only from Luke's gospel, but also Mark's gospel, that that uh, there are references to Simon's family, which seems to indicate that Simon, this man who is pressed into duty by the Romans, uh, actually becomes a follower of Jesus. Um, one who literally bears his cross yeah. and follows after Jesus, which Jesus describes as a characteristic uh, of, of discipleship, even in Luke's gospel. We can read that in uh, Luke 9 and Luke 14. Mm. So yeah, it's almost like Jesus picks up a, a, a catechism student on the way to the cross, yeah. literally. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty incredible to to see that happen very literally. What Jesus said would happen. This is what it means to be a disciple, to pick up your cross and follow him. Simon does it. Now, there are also following Jesus. There's a great multitude and women who are mourning and lamenting. Jesus is going to, to teach them. He's going to speak to them on the way. First, just tell us about this scene of people. What What's going on here? Well, crucifixions are public events. And when things are happening in a city, uh, especially, you know, Passover is kind of a, I mean, a, just a real, you've got Jerusalem just on edge. Um, you've got this uh, festival, which is religious, but it's also kind of, na it can be nationalistic. This is, you know, Passover is, is, is central to the identity of an Israelite. Right, right. The Lord took us up out of Egypt and brought us into the promised land. And that's the entire exodus that's being celebrated at the Passover. And so you've got a bunch of things going on. You've got a huge crowd of people in the city, period. You've got leaders of the people now, as we read earlier in the Passion account, who have, you know, arrested Jesus, tried Jesus, brought Jesus to the occupying Roman government and said, we don't want him. And now there is going to be a public execution of this man who had drawn attention to himself in the public teaching he had done during that week of Passover. 
And so as this group is going out from where Jesus was on trial, going outside of the city to actually crucify Jesus along with two others, um, it's not surprising that he might pick up actually a crowd on the way. There's plenty of people there. Um, you've got onlookers because you've got to take them out of this kind of the central part of the city outside of it. Uh, now you're starting to reach daylight hours, right? Um, the trial, is, it's overnight in the Sanhedrin. It's early morning uh, with, with the Roman trial. But now we're reaching morning time. It's a Passover week, so there's busyness going on. And you've got Roman soldiers marching a guy out to be crucified, which is a sign of their occupation and, and dominance over these people. Um, the idea that that wouldn't, like, you know, gain a crowd of onlookers, well, it, it happens in our day when we see public things happening in a city, um, uh, you know, police-involved matter or things like that. It, it gains a crowd pretty quickly. So that makes sense, that there's a crowd that gathers. But the second group of people, the women who are mourning and lamenting, that seems a lot more specific. Yeah, so Jesus has this group of women followers, which gets mentioned in Luke's Gospel, in, in Luke chapter 8, that uh, there's actually mention of uh, certain numbers of them who were dedicated to Jesus because of things that Jesus had done for them. And they are present with Jesus. It's not only mentioned that he has followers who, like, you know, people who are believing in him, in him who happen to be women, but they actually travel with him. They're, they're, they, they go along with him. They, 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 they well, they bankroll him, according to Luke 8. You know, <laughs> they're, they're giving to him out of their own possessions. And they happen to be present here when Jesus is going to be crucified and their mourning of him and lamenting for him is an expression of, you know, their sorrow about what's going, it's, it's clear what's going to be happening to him. It's clear he's already been flogged and beaten. So, so that's obvious. And when you're carrying a cross beam out, everyone knows what's going to happen to you. Hmm. And so as Jesus is going to his death, these devoted followers of him uh, express their their sorrow Certain, of what's going to happen. Certainly a, a natural thing for these women to do. Jesus then turns to them and speaks. He calls them daughters of Jerusalem. Take us into what Jesus says here. This is, is kind of like his last extended teaching right before he dies. Yeah, so, so we get this teaching where Jesus says, uh, first, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me but weep for yourselves and for your children. And then he talks about days that are coming when people will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And they'll say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. And then he gives this proverb. If they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Mm. Now, what's interesting is I think you've got two kind of people being addressed here. I think in part you have Jesus actually addressing the women followers and he calls them daughters of Jerusalem, which is a back in the old Testament, that title is used a number of times to represent the faithful Israelites, the ones who are believing in Yahweh, the Lord, the ones who are putting their trust in him. And so now as Jesus is fulfilling the prophetic statements made by the Lord, 
which included uh, the necessity of his dying. This, this, this act that they're mourning must happen, and it must happen for their salvation. And so I think there's, there's a, perhaps a dress to that. You're mourning and weeping, but honestly, if this thing doesn't happen, then there is no salvation for you. Then all the things that you are looking and turning to me to give will actually not be fulfilled. So I think there's part of that. But there's also this address to, well, these people representing Jerusalem that have not received him. And that's where you have those statements that Jesus makes about, you know, uh, a day coming when when people are actually going to want, like, the mountains to cover them and fall on them. Um, Because the wrath of God is going to be poured out at some point. Um, on the unbelieving Jerusalem. And Jesus speaks of that um, in Luke's Gospel and all the other Synoptic Gospels, too, about Judgment Day. But he also speaks of it kind of in ties of uh, foretelling um, a day that's going to come about, about two generations later, about 40 years later, when Jerusalem would be destroyed. And Jesus is kind of saying, you know, really, if you want to see evidence of the Lord's wrath, it has been poured out on this city before. And when it gets poured out in a temporal wrath in in, in this um, city, uh, when the Romans just level it, uh, it's not going to be good. We heard him talk about that in Luke chapter 21, where, as you said, he talked mm-hmm. both about the destruction of the, the temple in Jerusalem as well as the end of, of all things. Now, as you mentioned here, he closes this statement with a proverb of sorts. He says in verse 31, if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? What does that mean? Well, the, the proverb is actually kind of easy for us to understand in terms of like the, the concept Jesus is putting in there. If you ever tried to burn um, uh, undried out wood, uh, it takes a lot of effort. Right. You know, you, you kind of like, you know, uh, uh, throw, you know, uh, fuel on it or, you know, something because it usually just kind of smolders a, a good bit. Uh, but when you put like a, a wood, you know, you cut down a tree and then you store it inside like for like, you know, a couple of years and then throw that on the fire. It just boom goes up. Mm. So that, that's easy to understand, like the, the, the concept. The question is, what does Jesus mean by it? Mm. And uh, perhaps what we can think of it is um, maybe one of two ways. One is that the green wood is Jesus. Uh, in his sinlessness, and the dry wood will be the Jews of Jerusalem in their sinfulness. And when the time gets right, um, when wrath gets poured out, uh, wrath is being poured out on Jesus uh, as a substitute. Uh, but when it gets actually poured out on people who deserve it, it it's, it, it's going to light up. Mm. Um, the other kind of thing is like, if God hasn't spared his son from this tribulation uh, of his crucifixion, well, how much worse is it going to be when a sinful nation actually gets God's righteous wrath poured out on it? Mm. I, I, you know, it, it kind of is this idea of going from a lesser to greater idea in mm. the proverb. Mm. Yeah. Either, and either one ends up with a pretty terrifying thought of judgment for mm-hmm. the unbelieving people or the unbelieving city. 
I think both of those match up very well with what we heard John preach early in the gospel about the, you know, the ax being laid to the root of the trees mm-hmm. and being thrown into the fire. And even, even perhaps a, a bit of a, a hint of what happens in Luke 13, where Jesus tells the parable of that fig tree that's unfruitful and the day will come that it will be cut down if it doesn't bear fruit. And uh, maybe there's a, a bit of a relation there as well. So yeah, either, either mm-hmm. way you take it, uh, a picture of judgment and reason to mourn now and, and repent now, lest yes. that judgment happen. And so, yeah, Jesus gives this preaching even on the way to his cross, which is, is where he is about to go. So we pick up the text now in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That takes us through verse 43 of the text here in Luke chapter 23. So, Pastor Zimmerman, Jesus now arrives at the cross, and Luke gives us a little bit of details about the place name and who is crucified there with him, the the two criminals. Set the scene here. So Jesus isn't crucified alone. Um, The Roman governor, um, Pilate, uses this as an opportunity to have a public execution of several people, uh, which is maybe a kind of thumb in the eye, again, during the Passover festival. You know, you all are celebrating your kind of national religious holiday, but I can still crucify all of you if you get out of step with my law that I'm here, Caesar's law. And so Jesus is taken away to a place uh, just kind of called the skulls, the cranium, uh, um, kind of a literal translation of it. Um, and so maybe that's the shape of the, of the hill uh, might look like a skull. Maybe they believe there was a particular skull there. We're, we're not told, uh, but that's what they call the place. And so Jesus is crucified with these two criminals, and he has one on his right and one on his left. So he's in the middle of these lawbreakers, transgressors. And, and Jesus even noted that um, uh, on Thursday night, so, so, so that previous night, where he said uh, in Luke 22, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and what is written about me has its fulfillment. And, well, it literally does um, in the fact that he is crucified among transgressors. But Jesus isn't a transgressor. That, that's the thing. Uh, Luke, Luke wants us to know that. Jesus is being crucified unjustly, unrighteously, 
not because he broke any law, but these two with him have. Okay, so they're getting their just desserts. They're getting what they deserve by their violating the Lord's law, being executed through uh, the authorities of the day. So the you know as we as we speak like in the fourth commandment, the the authorities who have delegated have the Lord's authority delegated to them. Uh, but Jesus hasn't actually done anything. Uh, and so that that's one of the things that we want to hear all through the passion narrative of Luke is this repeated statements about Jesus righteousness that 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 we'll see. Mm-hmm. yeah, we we read one. We'll talk a little bit more about it already mm-hmm. you know in when the the one of those criminals speaks up to Jesus, and we're going to hear another uh, judgment of Jesus' innocence coming up toward the end of the text as well. It was certainly a big deal in the previous part where, Pilate said Jesus is innocent more than once. Over and over again, mm-hmm. this is the theme. Jesus is the innocent one suffering for us sinners. Now, we we talked about Jesus' words on the way to the cross. That's his last extended teaching, but he is not done speaking. We know that Jesus speaks from the cross. We generally think of the seven words of Jesus from the cross that are recorded for us by the four evangelists. Luke has three of them, and if I'm if I remember correctly, the three that we're we hear in this section are unique to Luke. He's the only one that records these three. And so the first one that Luke gives us is in verse 34. Jesus says, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." And and Pastor Zimmerman, I hate to do that, but we need to take our break. I don't want to have to interrupt you in your answer. So we're going to pick up that word of Jesus after the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, talking Luke 23 with Pastor Luke Zimmerman. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, April 14th. We're studying Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 49 with Pastor Luke Zimmerman. He serves at Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Pastor Zimmerman, we left with a little bit of a cliffhanger. We left with the words of Jesus from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Tell us about these words of Jesus. This is Jesus interceding for the people who are crucifying him. Uh, we talk about Jesus being a high priest or, or a uh, intercessor, intermediary. Uh, th- those are um, titles, uh, terms that the scriptures use about Jesus, and here he's doing it. Uh, the very people who are actually putting him to death unjustly, Jesus is praying for their forgiveness. Uh, in, in a way of maybe kind of speaking of it, um, if we think about uh, in the Psalter, uh, was it Psalm 118, where we talk about it's like the Holy Week Psalm, <laughs> uh, and and we and we and we talk about uh, binding the sacrifice to the horns of the altar, right? Mm. Well, it's like it's Jesus being uh, the high priest and the sacrifice, 
you know, that great, that great mystery. He's the priest and victim. Uh, as he is literally being bound, fixed to the altar of the cross, he is making intercession for the sins of the people. Mm. And it's more than maybe a lot of us would do. When mm. something happens to us unjustly, we often will call out for justice and righteousness. You know, sometimes what we think is just and right. Mm. And maybe not the pardon of those who have done us wrong. And yet, this is exactly what Jesus does. He asks for his father, uh, and as priest be- between God and the people, Jesus intercedes and asks for forgiveness mm. to be given. Yeah, I mean, it is a beautiful moment from our Lord. And, and you know, as you said, this may be not the way we'd normally think to act, but you do start to see, we'll, we'll see this in the book of Acts when we pick that up after Easter, that there's one in particular, Stephen, who follows his Lord's example here, that the Lord's example of forgiveness changes the hearts of his people toward that same forgiveness. So he prays as their great high priest, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They continue in these acts, not knowing what they do. The next thing that happens is the soldiers cast lots. That's that's gambling, right? Uh, For his garments? Yeah, it's gambling and they're good at it. (laughs) <laughs> say that. Uh, that. I mean, this is uh, execution detail means you get uh, some pay, basically taking your victim's stuff. Mm. And uh, you got to pass the time a little bit because crucifixions take a while. At least uh, most of them do. Uh, and so part of it is, you know, the gambling uh, that goes on. The, the soldiers there uh, casting lots. But what's interesting is also uh, as we think of the scriptures, and in our churches, usually around Holy Thursday, Good Friday, there's a couple of the Psalms that we pray. You know, Psalm 118, that's usually Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, parts of it. But then Psalm 22, the great Psalm that is tied to Jesus' crucifixion, the Christ crucifixion. And one of those um, verses, verse 18 of Psalm 22 they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Mm. And literally happening um, as the Psalter foretold mm. of the Lord's Messiah. Mm. Now, as the text continues, St. Luke emphasizes particularly the mockery that Jesus receives there on the cross. I think we often think of the pain that Jesus endured, and rightly so. But the shame really comes through in the Gospels. And, and Luke here tells us about the mockery that is given first by the, the people, the soldiers. It seems like anybody who can is mocking Jesus. What are they mocking him about? So crucifixions are public spectacles. And you want to see the complete powerlessness of someone. It's, you know, hanging naked in front of them, dying. And so the mocks are directed at the impossibility of Jesus' claims of who he is to actually be true. Uh, They're trying to undermine the claims that Jesus had made about his identity. Because if you look at the mocks, the mockeries, uh, the things being the insults being spoken at Jesus, they're tied or they're um, they're allusions to to Jesus being the Messiah. Um, so so it's kind of like this. It's like okay, you hang it up there on the cross, okay, 
if if you are the Christ of God, his chosen one, then there's no way you should be hanging on a cross dying. Uh, I mean, what, what, what type of Messiah does that? Right? If God chose you, how can you be suffering unjustly? How could a just God allow that? Which actually kind of sounds like some of the uh, criticisms of, of the Christian faith even now. If you are the king of the Jews, it's the soldiers mock him, right? If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself, right? If you're the king of the Jews, then how is it that your own people turned you over to us, us Roman occupiers, who pounded nails into your arms, your wrists, and your legs, and are leaving you out to die? I mean, what type of king is that? Right? So these, these, these mockeries are directed at you know, the powerlessness of Jesus. Uh, the, you know, there's no way his identity could ever be fulfilled if this is happening to him. Now, what's interesting, though, is the identity of Jesus had been pointed out a couple times in Luke's Gospel. Some from God the Father, who speaks when Jesus was baptized, also speaks when Jesus is transfigured. And he's spoken of as my chosen one and my son. Jesus, when he teaches about himself being the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah, speaks about the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So, so when Jesus is confessed as the Christ by Peter, he follows it up saying, yeah, and this is what it means must happen to him. And those are tied back to like the book of Isaiah, where the Lord's Messiah is spoken of as a chosen servant of God who would suffer. And again, our audience might be familiar, Isaiah 53 is usually the Old Testament reading that we bring forward on Good Friday, when we speak of Jesus being crucified. And there it is, the chosen servant of the Lord suffering. And Jesus fulfilling, actually, statements made about what the Lord's Messiah must undergo. So the mocks actually are thrown out there, but they don't actually land if you see the things through the prism of these statements made uh, by God concerning his Christ. Yeah, I appreciate you reminding us of the transfiguration because it, that language of chosen one is unique to Luke's account of these things. He, he's the one that records that for us. And that, that connection, I think, is really important, even for the, the disciples may not have understood it at the time, but as we read it now to recognize, hey, this one who is on the cross is in fact the chosen one. He is God right there dying for me in my place. It's a, a beautiful reminder in the midst of this suffering that God is doing what he intended to do all along, which is to bring about the salvation through the suffering and death of this innocent one, Jesus Christ, who truly is the chosen one of God, who truly is the king of the Jews. Now, 
as the text continues, we zoom in to the conversation that's happening now on the cross. The three men are there, Jesus in the middle, criminals on either side, and there's a conversation that happens, mockery, but also prayer. Take us into to what happens with these two criminals. Okay, so one of the criminals, um, you know, whether it's a sarcastic statement or an insult or one final kind of desperate uh, uh, kind of statement like, you know, if, if, if you know, aren't you the Christ, well, it'd be a nice time to show it, right? You know, uh, say, save yourself and us um, is chiming in on, on the not believing statements leveled at Jesus. Just kind of put it that way. But in response to this, one of the other criminals points out the flawed understanding. And he really asks the question that we, we need to ask of really kind of our own selves. You know, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And it's a statement then we indeed justly, because we're receiving a due reward of our deeds. We're getting our just desserts. We're, we're getting what our actions earned. And it's possible even that these criminals may have been in league with each other. We're, we're not told that, but that it would make sense that if, if they had actually been involved in the same crime and in, in league with each other, that they'd be executed together. And that's a, that's a good, uh, good policy for the Romans. Um, but this criminal says, you know, you, you know, you, you're you're asking for something uh, for this Jesus to, to 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 you know take us down for the cross, but we're getting actually what we deserve. But he's not. You know, he's done nothing wrong. And here you get this final declaration of Jesus' righteousness prior to his death, and it comes from a person who knows what unrighteousness is, who knows what sin is, because he committed plenty of it. That's why he's hanging on the cross. And he points to Jesus and says, that guy isn't getting what he deserves. Yeah. And he shouldn't be here. <laughs> right. So this another declaration of Jesus' innocence from one of the criminals there on the cross, even in, as, he be, as he begins to, to speak and then to pray, as we're going to look at in this verse 42, I'm almost reminded a little bit of the prayer of the tax collector from Luke 18, Lord, be merciful oh, to yes. me, a mm-hmm. sinner. And and here, this this man has admitted his sin. You know, we're receiving the just reward of our deeds. And now he's going to speak to Jesus. He doesn't say, have mercy, but instead he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus speaks again, some of the most beautiful words recorded in the scriptures. I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Go to this back and forth between the repentant thief and Jesus. Okay, so this criminal who is getting what he deserves um, and hears all the insults leveled at Jesus apparently actually believes in Jesus' identity as the Christ. You know, uh, you know the, the insults were, right, um, if he is the Christ of God who's chosen one, you know, you know, come down, right? If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Are, are you not the Christ? Save, save yourself and us, right? That, that's what the insults were, were leveled at Jesus. Um, and the penitent thief actually is saying in his request to Jesus, after admitting his own guilt, remember me when you come into your kingdom, 
is that he's actually believing Jesus is going to come into his own kingdom, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ, uh, that, that in some way this is not going to be the end. And he's pinned his hope on that. And in that moment of faith, of, of belief, in the face of that insult, that, that's always trying to undermine the claims of Jesus' identity, this man has hooked into Jesus' identity as the Christ and says, I want you to remember me when your identity is completely fulfilled, when you, the Messiah, do come into your kingdom. And Jesus, in response to that faith, in response to that belief the man has, in response to a request that's rooted in his identity, says, I'm going to grant it to you. Hmm. And, but Jesus had done that through Luke's gospel. Um, there are times when Jesus had people come up to him requesting things of him because of what the people believed concerning him. And you see this response is where Jesus does what the people request and comments favorably on their belief. And here the ultimate thing is being given to this penitent thief. He is going to enter into paradise with Jesus as Jesus is completing and fulfilling his identity as that promised one who is going to bring humanity back into paradise back into the perfect state that had been given when God first made his human creatures. They rebelled, but now Jesus is beginning the act that will restore them, and this penitent thief is along for the ride, in a good way of speaking. He's along for it. He will be given what Jesus is earning. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful thing, and and the the uh, one word that really sticks out to me is the word today. You know, I mean, you talked about that. You know, the man asks, "Remember me when you come into your kingdom." Well, well, when is that? It's today, which is just a, a marvelous thing when we think about the crucifixion. That this is Jesus actually bringing his kingdom, and it's not it's not an indefinite thing like well, whenever it happens, but he's doing it right here, right now on the cross. And because the thief there on the cross is repentant and believes, he receives that gift today. And that's just a, I mean, what a, what a wonderful thing. And it connects in Luke's gospel, particularly, it goes back to, to Christmas when the angel tells the shepherds that unto you is born this day, today, a savior. And Zacchaeus got to hear today, salvation has come to this house. Mm -hmm. And here now, this is, I mean, think the culmination of all that today you're in paradise with me because the kingdom is here. Jesus is winning it right now, right here on the cross. It's yours today. That's good news. Mm -hmm. So Pastor Zimmerman, let's, let's keep going then in the rest of the text. We are in verse 44 now. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. 
Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returning home, beating their breasts, returned home beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. That's the rest of our text for today. That was Luke 23, 44 to 49. Pastor Zimmerman, help us with the time. Sixth hour to the ninth hour darkness. What time is this? Okay, so we're using the basic kind of Roman marketing time. Uh, so you start at like zero, like when the sun comes up, and then you just keep adding hours. Okay, so if you imagine sun generally comes up around six in the morning, and you just kind of add. So six plus six takes you to noon. And then the ninth hour, three more hours, takes you to three. And that, that's where we get our tradition uh, that some of our churches uh, hold uh, Good Friday services during that time period. Mm-hmm. Um, some of our listeners might belong to congregations where, where they do that uh, uh, three-hour service from noon to three or sometime in that noon to three period. Uh, and then they might have a service later on, on uh, Good Friday evening, but something during the day. Uh, so that's where we are now. Of course, if you're if you're in the springtime, because Passover is the spring, and um, assuming it's not a stormy, blustery day, usually between noon and three is you expect a good bit of sunshine. You know, um, e- even in our um, uh, geography, we expect that. <laughs> and um, if it's dark out. Uh, because the sun's light has failed, uh, something's going that's that that's um, not not right, not normal. Uh, and again, you know, some of us might be, uh, you know, like like you in Texas, right? In the in the in the big storms that come through, uh, where you might have darkness. Uh, but we're not described with a storm, a tempest. Just that we actually just have darkness, and. Darkness like this, where it's not expected, not where it's supposed to be, well, we have statements in the scriptures where darkness is, or the coming of darkness is usually described as like a portent of, uh, well, eschatological things, last things, judgment things. Uh, darkness is also used as maybe like the powers of evil at work. So, so darkness kind of personifying uh, the people, the people who love sin, like to stay in the darkness. You know, kind of statements like that from the scriptures. The domain of darkness, these sorts of things. Um, possibly even the idea that nature is involved in this um, event taking place. Uh, the idea of uh, the, the creation being involved in affairs that affect human history, and um, Jesus kind of describes that uh, tied to the last day. Some of his teachings. So. You know, it's spooky at the very least. You know, mm. uh, it's not. You know, everyone would be like, "This is not what's supposed to happen." But then again, an innocent man is not supposed to be crucified. Mm. Even mm. more so, God, who has become flesh and dwelt among us, is not supposed to be dying. Yet it must happen because this is how salvation is being brought. But but you can kind of see as you know, uh, these things aren't normal or what's supposed to be mm. it's things are kind of out of order here and and, and yeah very much so uh, God who is actually uh, taking death upon himself taking sin upon himself mm. isn't what's 
supposed to be in terms of order, but it's supposed to be in terms of the Lord fulfilling the promises he made to his fallen creation. Pastor Zimmerman, we have about seven minutes left, just so you know. Mm-hmm. And and by 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 what I'm reading, I, there's at least well, there's probably more, but three big things that we want to make sure we talk about: sure. the temple curtain, Jesus' last words, "Father, into your hands I commit my spirit," and then the centurion's confession. So sure. I'm gonna I'm gonna hand it to you, and you take as much time as you need. You divide it as as you see fit to talk about those things for us. Okay, the temple curtain uh, being torn in two is probably the best way to kind of think of it is that we have access to God that is being um, achieved through this act that Jesus is performing. Uh, This is the great high priestly act. He is bringing the sacrifice to bring mankind back into favor with God, you know, all things being brought right. And now the access to God is available. Um, and we have references like in the book of Hebrews to Jesus as the high priest. And I would uh, commend our uh, audience to, to take a look at those. Um, it's a worthy book to study in its own right. Um, Jesus committing his spirit into the hands of his father is important uh, because he's actually quoting the scriptures here. He, he's quoting Psalm 31. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And we talk about a blessed death. We talk about a death of the faithful, who are faithful unto death. And this is what Jesus is. He is the faithful one. And as he is dying, and as he is completing what he's been given by his Father to do, as he is fulfilling what the faithful God said, making good on the promises. Jesus knows what is to happen. He gave it in those passion predictions. He is to suffer, die, be buried, and be raised. And now as he is dying, he is putting all his trust in God who had given him that assignment. The people didn't think God was being righteous. They're killing the righteous one. Jesus, though, proves to be righteous, not only in what he does, the acts he performs, but also trusting in God's promise of salvation. And so here you see the example of a blessed death, um, which we pray that we will imitate and follow. Um, it's actually in our commendation of the dying. Uh, we use that verse. And in Compline, every night when we kind of practice dying, <laughs> we, we have that statement, uh, into your hand I commend my spirits, and you have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God, or God of truth. As Jesus dies, everyone notices this wasn't a criminal who died. This, this wasn't right to have done this unjust act of... of uh, Uh, killing a righteous one. And a centurion who had that job of carrying it out notes it. Certainly this man was innocent or this man was righteous or just. And now you've got that where Pilate had it when Jesus was on trial. The criminal hanging next to Jesus says that. And now his executioner says it after the job is done. This man had nothing to answer for in terms of sin or guilt. 
And that's actually what allows Jesus to be the sacrifice of atonement. He's not suffering for what he did. He's suffering in place of people who deserved it. The righteous one dying for the unrighteous. And the crowd, when they see it, yeah, they, they note in repentance, beating their breasts, the sign of repentance. Uh, what we were part of here wasn't right. Now, later, when uh, about 50 days later, when Peter preaches on Pentecost, that's going to be pointed out. And they're going to be pointed to the salvation and forgiveness this Jesus has earned. Yeah, it's. I mean, so all this is going to be coming to completion. This is the, as you said, a climax, but there is something yet coming. And we, we definitely want to keep reading to find out what happens. Because ultimately, I, I think, you know, with this theme that Jesus is the innocent one, one, one way we can think about the resurrection is that that's the Father's declaration. You know, we, we've mm-hmm. heard from these various people along the way, Jesus is innocent, he's righteous. When the Father raises Jesus from the dead, that's that's the final declaration. Jesus is the innocent one. He's the Savior. Got about a minute here to wrap things up, Pastor Zimmerman. Yeah, that is the key. Is the key of the resurrection is going to unlock everything that we saw here in the crucifixion. The You have to see the holy victim is offered for the atonement of sin, and then the confirmation that our hope placed in Jesus was indeed correct is revealed when the Father raises him from the dead. And that is what's going to turn everything around. His acquaintances, the women who followed him, see it, and they're devastated. But when the risen Christ appears, their hope will be restored. And we who have heard their witness now look to Jesus as our source of hope as well. Pastor Luke Zimmerman is pastor at Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania helping us today with Luke 23, verses 26 to 49. Pastor Zimmerman, thanks for being our guest today. Very welcome. Glad to do it. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke 23, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending this Monday, Thursday morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.